Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Michael Earl. I'm the chairman of the Oxford Centre for the Study of Philanthropy. And I just wanted to explain a bit about that because it's a new initiative. And in a few moments, I'll be passing over to uh, the principal of Green Templeton College, Denise Leavesley. Just a few words about the Oxford Centre for the Study of Philanthropy. We started it for two or three reasons. First of all, I think probably as we all recognise, philanthropy seems to be getting ever more important in the 21st century and is also important in most countries of the world. And we found that although there's various bodies who do work on philanthropy, there aren't many <coughs> academic research bodies. Uh, so we thought we'd set one up. And if you wondered what our agenda is, we've got uh, three areas of inquiry which we intend to pursue, uh, all beginning with P, because I'm very fond of alliteration. Uh, the first one is to understand more about the phenomenon of philanthropy. And as an example of that, I think we can observe all sorts of new forms of philanthropy emerging in the 21st century, so that would be one of our areas of study to start off with. Many of them, of course, enabled by new technologies such as social media and also <coughs> uh, enabled by the increased interest in things like social entrepreneurship. The second area, the second P, is policy. Uh, so where does philanthropy fit into <coughs> political economy? Uh, where does it fit into public sector funding and so forth. And the third area is the practice of philanthropy. So as an example of that, what would make a good and effective relationship between a philanthropist and a recipient? Just as an example question. My main purpose is to introduce our speaker for this evening. And I'm really delighted to welcome Baroness Julia Neuberger, to this meeting of the Oxford Centre for the Study of Philanthropy. She's so incredibly well known as the second of Britain's female rabbis, a peer, a social commentator, and the holder of so many important posts in public life. Um, she needs only a minimal introduction from me, so I'm just going to give you a few highlights. Her father arrived in England from Germany before the First World War, and her mother fled from Nazi Germany in 1937. The Schwab Trust was set up in their name to help and support and educate young refugees and asylum seekers. This is incredibly relevant at the moment. We at the governing body here at Green Templeton tomorrow will be discussing our relationship with the Council for, for at-risk academics and whether in the current situations, we would, should be providing refuge, sanctuary at this university for at-risk academics. So focusing particularly, and I say it today with a big sigh, on Syria, but not just on Syria. Um, from 1977 to 1989, Julia was rabbi of the South London Liberal Synagogue. And in 2011, she was appointed to be senior rabbi of the West London Synagogue. Since 2007, she's been president of the liberal Judaism movement. 
and after serving as chair of the Camden and Islington Community Health Services NHS Trust from 1992 to 1997, she was chief executive of the King's Fund from 1997 to 2004. So her, her breadth is so powerful to what we exist for here at Green Templeton, so a wonderful speaker for us to have. She was created a life peer in 2004, and she was Liberal Democrat health spokesman until 2007, becoming a crossbencher in 2011 on her appointment as senior rabbi. And in 2007, she became the government's champion of volunteering. She's written a number of books. Her one, The Moral State We're In, published in 2005, is highly relevant to tonight's topic, which is philanthropy, faith, and public policy. So please join me in welcoming Julia. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Denise. And ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour and delight to have been asked to give what apparently is the first philanthropy lecture in the Centre's inaugural series of lectures and seminars. And I'm a bit terrified because Frank Prochaska's in the room and he wrote the history of the King's Fund. So I uh, pull a forelock. Um, I'm also particularly delighted because some years ago now, I was briefly uh, a professor at Harvard. I was invited to be a professor at Harvard by fax, but that's another story. I was the Bloomberg professor at Harvard Divinity School, focusing on philanthropy and public policy. So this is a subject dear to my heart. Let me first tell you a little bit about that, and then move on to where I believe serious research needs to be carried out, and indeed, what I believe we should all now be thinking about. So at Harvard, I was given an extremely free reign and even a budget to invite speakers. Uh, you need to understand that the issue of faith-based philanthropy is not as tricky in the US as it is here. And many of those involved in a totally secular leadership position in philanthropy in the United States, um, they, they actually cut their teeth originally, either as clergy or as community workers, or indeed as both, in the black churches and citizens' organizing endeavors of New York and Chicago. I was very struck at that time by the influence that Abyssinian Baptist Church had over the redevelopment of Harlem, for instance, and the way that their representations brought a proper supermarket to New York's 125th Street, ensuring not only that prices were lowered for all the old residents of the area, but that areas of Harlem became more desirable for wider groups, and indeed, that the old fear of traveling above the 90s in New York was dissipated as everyone went to do their shopping at 125th. And I think it's really important, but it was as, as, as astonishing. It's a, it's a combination of foundations and a particular church and a series of clergy that achieved that. It's just a remarkable story. But I was trying to demonstrate two things in my time at Harvard. First, that philanthropy, or perhaps more accurately, philanthropists in the shape of individuals and indeed charitable foundations, have a luxury that governments, national and local, don't share. They are allowed, and you might even argue, are encouraged to take risks. Indeed, venture philanthropy is increasingly what adventurous philanthropists are doing, and venture philanthropy means taking a risk, possibly reaping rich rewards, carrying out serious evaluation and monitoring, and ideally, where the experiment, whatever it was, that has been so risky has paid off, introducing it into public policy. 
And let me give you some examples. Here is where I bow to Frank. First, a program called Enhancing the Healing Environment. This was a program we developed at the King's Fund when I was chief executive there. And in case you don't think that the King's Fund has a faith base, I need to tell you that whichever, whoever is the chief rabbi of the day and whoever is the Bishop of London of the day automatically have a seat on the King's Fund's general council. This particular project was part of our millennium celebrations when we agreed to spend six million on grants rather than our usually, usual two million. And that was to mark the millennium and to do something transformative for London's health. Not that you can do a lot with six million. Now, much of what we were doing, which is very King's Fundish, was quite techy and policy-based. So we decided, not least to please our president, the Prince of Wales, to do something to change the environment in which most patients ex uh, experience the NHS. My colleague Ian Wiley had the original idea, and we recruited Sarah Waller, a senior nurse and manager, to execute the programme, which she did with immense flair and verve. So much so that its work for design in dementia has been taken over recently by the University of Worcester, and hence enhancing the healing environment has become a sort of catchphrase. It's both a, uh, both a programme and indeed a catchphrase. We started this very small beer, a grant of £35,000 to each of London's acute hospitals, plus a short training programme for their nursing estates and management teams involved in the projects, plus patient groups. We hoped but of course we couldn't be sure, that the money would be a catalyst to leverage in other funds. I think we were all actually amazed at how, just how much it was possible to bring in. But I want to give you an example so you can see what I'm talking about. Hillingdon Hospital's A&E department. How many people have ever been to Hillingdon Hospital's A&E? I don't recommend it. <laughs> None of you. Very wise. Okay. It was a truly appalling place. I mean, just ghastly. It had its furniture screwed to the floor to prevent people chucking it around. Unsurprisingly, it was quite difficult to recruit staff and the police were frequently called. When they took out a part in enhancing the healing environment, the team concerned decided to go out to public consultation in the area. How would the locals like A&E to reception to look? And the answer came back loud and clear. An area that was welcoming, where people could sit together, not staring at strangers, and that represented the blues and greens of nature, not what's normally found in A&E departments. Indeed, actually quite a lot of them said what they wanted was a beach. So out went, I know, bizarre. So out went the ghastly, screwed down and shabby furniture. Instead, in came a huge palm tree and large mosaics representing palm trees and other trees with leaves crafted by a local artist where local people were invited to sign an individual leaf if they wished. Away went the bulletproof glass and the terrifying and terrified nurses and receptionists, and in came a low table, no glass, behind which sat the reception staff. The drinks machines offered dark coke. People sat in family groups, quite often on deck chairs. And the violence every Friday and Saturday evening went right down, and the only damage was the overwatering of the palm tree. Out of love, it died. <laughs> now... Not all the first endeavours in enhancing the healing environment were quite so successful, though I particularly liked St Mark's Hospital for Diseases of the Bowel with its composite photographs of its patients' bottoms, much loved by the patients as the new floor design. But we saw... It was terrific, absolutely terrific. It was their decision. 
We had no say. But we did see, and that's what I think is so interesting, a real relaxing of attitudes by patients in many locations as a result of this work. And then came the evaluation. Staff retention was up. Patient stays were decreasing. Satisfaction was up. Violence was down. The case was made. And over the ensuing 15 years, the project has been ro rolled out around the country in all sorts of health settings and indeed in some prisons too. And though it's gradually now winding down, it's without doubt been transformative, picked up by the NHS as a whole. And people within the NHS now really do believe that the environment in which you are healed or indeed work makes a difference. And in their dementia care work particularly, the team has just reached 10,000 uh, downloads of the dementia-friendly environmental assessment tools. They're now in use across the world, being used, and they're also being used both in England and in New South Wales to shape care standards for the future. So that's one example, venture philanthropy. Let me give you another example, quite different. This one is from the United States, from the remarkable Julie Sandorf, who now heads up the Revson Foundation, but was once head of the Corporation for Supported Housing in New York City. The corporation bought, in partnership with other organizations, a rundown flop house near Times Square in the early 80s when property prices were low. It's hard to believe that property prices were low in New York, but they were. And they converted it into a 660-unit apartment building. They were minuscule apartments. They wouldn't pass British uh, housing regs. It had once been a fairly smart hotel. They demonstrated what some of us have felt in our guts but never been able quite to convince the British Public Service on, that it was wrong to isolate people with severe mental health and other issues from the wider population. And so they provided supported housing in downtown Manhattan. Everybody, whoever they were, paid a third of their income, whatever it was and wherever it came from, and everyone helped in the building. 50% of the residents had been through the city's homeless shelters and system, and 50% just wanted low-cost accommodation, a rarity in downtown Manhattan. Those too frail to work outside the building became cleaners or receptionists. There were 24-hour doormen. And people with major difficulties began to live a real life. The place was absolutely spotless. In New York, where everyone has a dog, you could have eaten your dinner off the floor. The support the very considerable social support for a variety of the residents was completely hidden from public view. You wouldn't have known it was there. And people with the most intractable of mental health conditions, such as multiple personality disorder, which we regard as untreatable in this country, began with the support in this building to live a life. One woman with multiple personality disorder was much helped by the experiment, which was suggested by some of the social workers to the building's super that this woman, let's call her Mrs. A, could do three different jobs, each one with a different personality. On Mondays and Tuesdays, she cleaned, and on Wednesdays and Thursdays, she sat at the front desk, and on Fridays and Saturdays, she helped with the bookings for the public space, and on Sundays, a different woman again. She went to church. It worked. There was never a problem. There were many, and that's an example of something that was a one-off when it started, and there are now hundreds of them rolled out all over the United States, and the first beginnings of one in London, uh, the old Arlington House in Camden, has now become uh, somewhat but not totally similar. There were many other examples we took, from the extraordinary work of Sister Mary Scullion, a classic example of faith-based work in Philadelphia, to the attempts to heal the divides in New Orleans post-flooding when national government, state government and city government were at loggerheads. 
That brought Darren Walker, then of the Rockefeller Foundation, now head of the Ford Foundation, to address our students about how philanthropy, a few carrots to oil the wheels, a little bribery by another name, could make the most unlikely of partners, warring and feuding as they were, work together. <coughs> now, that's easy on that one, but um, I don't know how many of you here would know about Mary Scullion. Um, for those who don't know, she's been involved in service work and advocacy for homeless and mentally ill people in Philadelphia since the late 70s. Uh, it's true faith-based philanthropy. She both gives money and raises it. And then she gives money, time, hope, and housing to those who need it. And she was a co-founder of Woman of Hope, which has provided permanent um, residential and support services for homeless, mentally ill women. But what is particularly interesting about her is something called Project Home. And if you, have, if you get a chance and you're in Philadelphia, it's really, really, really worth going to see it. It's an organization that provides supportive housing, employment, education, and health care, all under one roof, to enable chronically homeless and low-income people to break the cycle. And it started in the late 80s. I was introduced to it by a social worker from Pennsylvania Hospital, the oldest hospital in the United States, and it's grown and grown. It was originally an, uh, an emergency winter shelter. It's now 600 units of housing. It's got three businesses. It's got economic development. It's got a state-of-the-art technology center, and I could go on and on. She raises the money. She's a trustee of various foundations, and she gives it. She's strongly faith-based and is the most foul-mouthed nun you'll ever meet. <laughs> but what she's doing works, and she also just as an aside, chaired the Hunger and Homelessness Committee for, the Pope, for Pope Francis's visit to Philadelphia. So why do I cite her? Well, because she's involved in doing from a faith base what I believe faith-based philanthropy should be doing. She looks for the neediest, she tends them with love, she raises the money and persuades many philanthropists that her work is worthwhile, and she's got absolutely no intention of converting anybody to Catholicism. Now, all the world's major religions are clear about the duty to help and give to the poor. My own religion, Judaism, is clear that giving 10% of one's income is not charity, as Christians would understand caritas, a reaction to terrible things, but in fact about social justice. And in both Judaism and Islam, there is the principle of what's called tzedakah in Hebrew and zakat, uh, which means essentially evening things up. It's closely related to tzedek, justice, and the Hebrew Bible is strong on things like avne tzedek, fair weights on the scales, evening up the way the dice fell in the first place. So 10% isn't about generosity, it's about duty. And from this comes the principle of tithing, which was originally, of course, for the church, but increasingly, especially in evangelical churches, for the church's favored charities. So when someone sets up a foundation and gives 10% of their income to it annually, this isn't actually about generosity, but about a form of religious duty. So the question that then arises is the extent to which it's entirely within that person's remit to give as she or he likes. In most Western countries, foundations and charitable giving carry certain tax benefits. Those monies would have been um, taxed, rendering money to the state. Arguably, the state has a say or should have a say on where the money can go. 
So there are issues about charitable status, and as chair of a small foundation in memory of my parents that gives money to individuals for their education, I'm so pleased to hear about the CARA venture. I'm all too aware of the level of trust that has to exist between the state in the UK and the shape of the Charity Commission and HMRC and foundations to avoid abuse. And indeed, I can tell you that having tried to set up on several occasions a friends organisation for our charity in the United States, the very fact that we give to Muslims and they might just possibly have terrorist sympathies has meant that thus far we have still failed to achieve our goal of an American group of friends of the charity, though the monies that various people have promised are still sitting there. I'm seriously irritated, but the state, as in the United States, is no doubt within its rights. But it is quite interesting to realise that this is that has that kind of effect. What then of faith-based giving? Does it focus on the duty to give rather than the needs of the recipients? Well, it's undoubtedly focused on the duty to give at the outset, but that is in fact no bad thing. The question that arises, and one that is worthy of serious research, is the extent to which the faith of the givers, and you could argue the same for political views or social mores or whatever, blinds them to actual need. Let me give you an example. Our small foundation in memory of my parents helps asylum seekers access education whether in the shape of giving unaccompanied minors looked after by local authorities computers to help them study, or later on paying their university fees if they're doing social work or health-related professional courses and sometimes helping with other fees. Well, why? Because my mother came as a refugee and was helped, and because my father's mother chaired the Welfare Committee of the Refugee Committee before and during World War II. Our main funder, our subsidiary, but far a uh, far wealthier, gave a far, a far larger fund, came as a refugee, became a distinguished social worker, never married, died without relatives, and left her entire estate for this purpose. So were we motivated by our faith? Yes, to the extent of giving a percentage of our income and some of my mother's estate, saving it from death duties. Is our giving, and Ilza Westheimer's, that's the subsidiary charity, shaped by personal experience? Yes. Is that a bad thing? In my view, no, it's a good thing. It enables us to say to our recipients that if they do well, we'd really like them to do the same thing for the next generation. But for those in our society who want fewer immigrants in Britain, we're clearly doing something they'd prefer we didn't. And there's a tax benefit in doing it. Those monies we give don't get taxed by the exchequer. Not only that, but because we do it, and become so furious at the vagaries of the immigration system, holding people in no man's land for up to 10 years, we do campaign for changes in public policy. Indeed, along with others, and as a result of a recent court victory, those with refugee status and indefinite leave to remain are now able to access student loans. At least they're supposed to be able to, but as yet the process hasn't been set up. Which means that ultimately, when it is set up, Although we may have to start them off because there are no parents around to give them their first £500, we're not in the position of funding an entire course for at least one group of people who would have been our former beneficiaries. And given that these young people will be a huge asset to British society and are determined to work hard and give back to the country, I believe that we're entirely right to make a fuss and to suggest to government it needs to think again. Equally, but below the radar... I feel embarrassed saying this here, but we do spend a great deal of our time persuading universities to charge home fees rather than overseas fees to some of our students. 
We can help more people if they charge home fees. And those universities that have Christian roots, some of the newer universities who are part of an organisation called Article 26, have been very sympathetic. It's required what I would describe, and Mary Gowdy will laugh at this, uh, somewhat heavier intervention by some of our trustees with some of the older universities and medical schools. We're not always successful, but sometimes we are. But is that our proper role? Well, I believe it is. We're using the direct experience of our work to ask for changes in public policy. We're not simply campaigning. And it's clear that simply campaigning, as some NGOs do, for instance, on climate change, begs certain questions. I've always found it hard to understand where the divide falls in terms of charity registration. But I find that campaigning on some issues, and climate change is just a, a good example, a case in point, though worthy to beg some questions about charitable status. Whilst the restrictions on, say, amnesty, partly charitable and partly not under its present uh, uh, registration, which is clearly concerned with individuals' human rights, whether or not we agree with the line taken, but it's restricted, I find that simply baffling. I just don't understand it. I have no difficulty, I imagine none of us do, with charities campaigning where their work gives them information that it should inform the debate. Bernardo's, the NSPCC, Save the Children and other children's charities have been right to raise issues of abuse, of the dereliction of duty to children in care, of sexual exploitation and of runaways. Without their hands-on experience, we wouldn't know. Similarly, the King's Fund was right as a result of experience through small charitable groups it funded to raise the issue of needing outreach for people with severe mental health problems and equally, as a funder on a large scale, to fund a pilot of assertive outreach along with the Sainsbury Charitable Trusts and force the government's hand to put in some of its money. That is proper behaviour on the part of a foundation. What is not proper is to argue, as some have, without an evidence base, that the NHS is neglecting particular groups, but absolutely right if the evidence is there. And one could explore that, but I haven't got time. So what needs urgent research by this new centre and by what is a growing world of academic study of philanthropy? And here's my list in no particular order. First, and I'm arguing against my own interests, is it right for philanthropists simply to fund their own churches, synagogues, mosques or whatever and get a tax break? I would argue that there's a pretty direct benefit arguable here, particularly if it pays a, a membership subscription or part of it, and that if it has tax relief at all, it should arguably be at a lower rate. But if people are funding the social action work of their religious institution, for instance, at my synagogue fund funding work with refugees and asylum seekers, none of whom in this case are Jewish, then that, that should get the same tax treatment as any other giving. People may choose to give to good causes through their place of worship or an organisation linked to their faith, uh, but the, one has to be quite careful. The cause has to be a good one. So churches funding Christian aid, for instance, or CAFOD, synagogues funding World Jewish Relief or even Jewish Care, mosques funding Islamic Relief, all seem to me to be entirely legitimate. It's when it's undifferentiated monies to the religious institution itself paying for the heating of the church you sit in, for instance, or for the wealth of the Vatican, that one might start asking some questions. <coughs> Second, is there a dark side to philanthropy? There's a conference happening shortly organised by Cass Business School on precisely this. The Times of India ran a, an article on the Gates Foundation some years ago, foc focusing on its funding around AIDS in its early days. And I quote, 
It pumped in lots of funds which were gratefully soaked up by farmhouse cocktail circuit elites. Much was said and written, little was done, and only government intervention contained India's AIDS problem. The foundation funds research and distribution of new medicines and vaccines. This is great for large drug makers, drug makers, but of doubtful value to the poor. And they continued, many health-related problems of the poor can be tackled by solving problems like access to safe drinking water, improved personal hygiene, women's and children's health, and proper nutrition. These are not sexy topics, nor do they involve billion-dollar fixes. So the charity bandwagon fixated on finance is not interested, end quote. A bit unfair, but one can see where the questions are coming from. Should charitable monies be funding pharma research when it's clear that pharma companies stand to make a killing? And equally, couldn't pharma companies reduce the cost of drugs or even give them free if necessary, as Cipla, a generic manufacturer of India, did for AIDS drugs in South Africa and forced the price down internationally, to quite a lot of people's great consternation. The Times of India then asked, should the big player type giving stop? No, it shouldn't, but the giver should focus on exactly what needs to be done in each country and devise strategies accordingly. If safe drinking water can prevent disease, focus on that rather than funding big pharma. Well, is that fair? Partly. Foundations, and Gates is huge, can focus on what they want. But there are questions to be asked about the sexiness of causes and the nature of need, the real experience of funders and what they want to get out of it. And there's also a question about the way foundations stand in a position to ask charities to jump, to which the answer, so desperate are they for funds, is just how high. And there's another question to be asked, and I think this is a real area for research, which is whether a single foundation acting on its own, however big and powerful, is anything like as effective as a consortium of givers. And that could be expanded into a study, an area of study looking at alliances between, say, charities and the private or public sector, or both. AIDS drugs is a very good case in point, with Cipla of India, Médecins Sans Frontières uh, as the deliverer of low-cost drugs, and various governments, and indeed tacit support from the Indian government. So there is serious research to be carried out about cause selection, questions about how the work will be evaluated, and questions about due diligence, intellectual and financial, carried out by philanthrop philanthropists before giving, as well as questions about the understanding of risk, perfectly acceptable in venture philanthropy, and what indeed you might mean by returns. And it's no coincidence that in the days of super-rich individuals who've made their money through hard-edged research and analysis in, say, venture capital or hedge funds, that a different set of questions is beginning to be asked, and that the quality of charitable measuring is being challenged, often quite rightly. But it's also no coincidence that small charities, often doing wonderful work, find it hard to produce the kinds of hard-edged evaluations that satisfy the sorts of people who've worked in highly analytical roles in financial markets. And there's just a question about whether sometimes philanthropists will need to show a level of trust once they approve of what the organisation is trying to do. And I think that's a really interesting area for research, although quite how one would design it, I'm not sure. There's also much harder research needed for, uh, to be carried out into motivation. Is philanthropy simply there to make people feel better about themselves? Do the givers really want to change the world? Is there one specific injustice or area which gets them burning with rage or enthusiasm? How do funders select projects? And is there a level playing field, or is it still often done by networking? Given tax breaks, should there be a level playing field? 
and should funding only be possible with openly advertised bidding rounds. Adding to that, the questions about whether it's acceptable with government funds being part of the monies available only to fund one's, only to fund one's own, Jews, their synagogues or Jewish care, Catholics, the Vatican charities, and the conversionists and other activities of missionary brothers and sisters, Muslims, their communities, and other Muslim groups through Islamic aid. Is that worthy of tax relief? And what about the deliberately conversionist activity of some Christian missionaries? Is that truly charitable, or in fact an expression of their religious faith, as all giving may be, and for their benefit rather than wider societies? So I think there's a huge amount to look at around faith and, and philanthropy, and I think it's going to make some people feel extremely uncomfortable. I suspect there's also quite a lot to look at around politics and philanthropy, and I'm one of those people who believes that it's completely absurd that political parties can't be charities when so many other things are. And I've always thought it's absolutely ridiculous we don't have public funding of political parties. I think the present system is appalling. Well, we've all seen that it's completely appalling. And I think there's a lot of questions about cultural allegiance and philanthropy too. But I'll finish with one great plea. Academic studies of philanthropy are growing apace, as are programs around ethics in the professions, another subject dear to my heart. I just hope that the research agenda can remain sufficiently practical to enthuse and motivate givers. However wonderful the academic research, if it doesn't reach the givers, whose motivations will be very different, but whose spark of interest must be encouraged, then despite its high academic standard, I think it'll be in vain. This is a practical field, and the research is largely applied. We need it to remain practical, and to be done in such an approachable way that givers are inspired and funders, old and new, are challenged and enthused. Now, that's a tall order for any field of endeavour. But in this area, where giving is growing, but motivation is complex, it's absolutely essential. I hope the centre goes from strength to strength, conducting practical, hands-on research that makes philanthropists sit up and listen, and ideally, inspires a whole new generation of them. Thank you. <laughs>